So I love literature. I mean, I really love literature. If I could have any superhero gift in the world, it would be to be a novelist. I don't know if that would be um, Captain Novel or Super Story, probably has a mullet, I'm not sure. Don't go down that road. But I love words, and I love how words actually take us into another world. Um, before we were missionaries, we went through the whole battery of psychological testings, and I remember sitting down with the counselor, and he was going through this, and he had this quizzical look on his face, and I thought, oh, this is trouble. And he said to me these words, he says, I think you have a rich internal world, <laughs> which I think was his way of putting a positive spin on the fact that I'm very odd. But I love literature, I love good literature. Every night I read literature before I go to bed at night and it just takes me into worlds of imagination and meaning and hope. And in literature, good literature, we find different literary tools. And what I wanna do is highlight a couple in the passage of scripture that uh, Stephanie read for us this morning. And in this passage, Paul is laying out a defense against those who would question his authority, that would question his leadership. Rather than defend himself, though, Paul foregrounds the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does so through the literary tools of juxtaposition and paradox. Now, juxtaposition is not only a fun word to say, it's actually a very helpful literary tool. And when combined with paradox, it actually opens up a world that we do not readily see in front of us. It's different from the literary style of like narrative where you can read quickly through narrative, but when you come to issues of juxtaposition and paradox, you actually have to pause, you have to stop. You have to read slowly. You have to have allow your imagination to come into things. And so juxtaposition takes two things and lets them stand next to each other, right? It's like Sesame Street, which of these things is not like the other, right? And that's what just, uh, juxtaposition does. And so it speaks without using a lot of words. Hot or cold, night, day, humanity, technology. Now, in the passage that we read, we actually find the juxtaposition of life and death, seen and unseen, present and future, light and darkness, power and weakness. And we're not going to be able to cover all of those, but juxtaposition is very common in literature. So one of the most famous would be Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, right? And you know how it begins. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Thank you, well done, right there. <laughs> or what about Robert Frost's poem, Two Roads Diverged in the Woods, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Isn't that beautiful? Now, juxtaposition also lets us see humor in this world, right? You can put two things side by side. So I could take my fit, okay, so I'm going to showcase this, and I could lay it aside, the, the Archbishop Dr. Emilio Alvarez, and, right? and then the common reaction is that everybody laughs, 
because you see somebody who gets secondhand clothes off the rack with somebody who looks like GQ just walked in the room, <laughs> right? So juxtaposition helps us to enjoy life, right? And we can do that with anything, and when I do it, I usually get the short end of the straw and whatever is being juxtaposed. Now paradox, on the other hand, involves a combination of seemingly contradictory terms. So it looks like juxtaposition, but when placed side by side, it reveals a hidden world of meaning. Paradox uses juxtaposition to highlight deeper meaning in the world. It's not just contrasting things, but it's actually the revelation of a deeper hidden truth when two words are put side by side. So George Bernard Shaw famously said that youth is wasted on the young, right? You have to think about that. Or what about the pen is mightier than the sword? Or the louder you are, the less they hear, right? So all of these cause you to pause. They, they trigger the imagination. They take you into a world of meaning. And so what Paul does is he uses both of these literary tools and he combines them so he could speak of kind of a paradoxical juxtaposition. So Paul is talking about his leadership, his authority, he's talking about who he is, but he fundamentally wants us to see the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One could say that he is talking about his leadership through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we hear these words, for we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, kurios, and ourselves as your slaves, doulos, for Jesus' sake. So all, all men, we're, we're seeing this, this paradox. For it is God who said, light will shine out of darkness, for he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So he juxtaposes light and darkness. Now scholars debate whether he's referring to Genesis 1, let there be light, or whether it's Isaiah 9, 1, the people walking in great darkness have seen a great light, or maybe later in Isaiah where the suffering servant is a light to the Gentiles, or perhaps it's even Paul's own conversion story where he had this blinding light that appeared to him as he saw Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Or maybe Paul is actually speaking in ambiguous terms to actually trigger our imaginations to bring together all of those at the same time. So light and darkness are a binary that have been known since the creation of the world. It carries a wide range of meanings, both spiritual as well as material. Spiritually, obviously, it triggers ish, uh, righteousness versus evil. So we see all of that all throughout the Old Testament, but it's also a very everyday image. So on a cloudless night, the stars light up the entire sky. We used to live in Tanzania and I would walk out at night and the galaxy almost was like it jumped out at you. And I would look at the Southern Cross every night and it was so bright that you could see all the other houses and people walking around. Paul actually uses that analogy later where he talks about how we as Christians are like light shining amidst a wicked and depraved generation.
A small lamp lights an entire house. The God who made his light shine in creation to Israel and to the new creation has made his light shine within our humanity. It's the light of the risen Christ. We see it in his glorious face. Now, light of this nature can't be fabricated, although our world desperately tries to fabricate it. Paul is likely taking the reader back to the former chapter in which he compares the veiled glory or light of Moses, which fades over time, with the unveiled glory that we have, ever increasing from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit. Light, of course, also doesn't just shine, but light actually lets us see everything else in the world as it truly is. The resurrected Christ stands before us today with shearing light. And through his light, we see the rest of the world as it truly is. Now, it's easy for leaders to trumpet our own qualifications, our skills, our abilities. Actually, in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually is wrestling with this in chapter 9, where he's marshalling. He said, I could argue that I am the best, that, that all of these qualifications that I have before me. And it's easy within an academic institution for us to do the same. Our degrees, our books, our awards. However, Paul says it is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the light of Jesus's face. Now this is beautiful and we automatically, unless we're living in darkness, we want light, but Paul presses the issue a little bit. So come deeper into the imagination of this passage. Paul says, but we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be visible in our bodies. So having highlighted this glorious light that just causes a smile to our face, Paul now nuances it with the frailty of those who bear this light. This is where we have to slow down and reflect. Paul says this treasure, which is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, resides in a clay jar. Now, a clay jar is not an analogy known to many of us. Of course, in Paul's day, it would have been commonplace to see both ornamental clay jars as well as very regular clay jars. I can imagine in my mind what a clay jar looks like, and I have seen some in my life, However, this is not something that we readily think about. And I'm not sure what the analogy is for those of us in the West. You see, we despise weakness. Our entire culture abhors an earthen vessel. We either want something that is permanent or we want something to throw away. If it isn't built to last, as Ford says, it's not kept around very long. We discard it because it's not good for anything. 
I've wrestled in preparing this with what contemporary images of a earthen vessel might be for us in our day. And the best illustration I can come up with is actually one that probably many of you also won't know, and that is a house of mud or sticks. Now, I realize that we don't see these things every day. Everything in our Western world aspires after strength and stability and permanence, but the rest of the world doesn't experience these characteristics, certainly not in the same way. Most of my friends in Africa are embarrassed by a mud house, and even more, by a mud church. They're vulnerable to the elements, they signify lower socioeconomic status, they're dirty, and if you've got money, what you do is you bake the bricks. But like a clay jar, those also feel the effects of the sun and the rain and the decay of time. Yet it seems to me that a house or a church of dirt and sticks is a kind of paradox that we need to hear. Paul communicates the treasure of the gospel we now enjoy through the death and the resurrection of Jesus within jars of clay. So the language of proximity, the language of movement is important. So that the extraordinary power of God belongs to God and not to us. Power and weakness, extraordinary power an extraordinary weakness. The paradoxical juxtaposition almost seems to slap us in the face. So let's consider a mud church. Many years ago, we were living in Tanzania and I visited and preached in a church in Usandawe, Tanzania. Besides the fact that the Sandawe speak a click language, which is truly amazing. What I remember most about this one time of preaching was the small stature of the church building. It was made mostly of mud and sticks and even the roof was flat and it was also made of mud and sticks. The height of the roof was less than six foot tall. Now I'm not an unusually large person, but I am taller than six foot. So I was asked to preach in this church bent over for a long sermon, and then afterwards I was asked to officiate the Eucharist. When I stood up with the elements, which were small vials of juice and wafers of bread, my hit, head hit the top of the roof and the mud splattered down into the elements. I remember it distinctly as if it was today. A number of us recently went to East Africa and we spent two weeks under the authority of some of my former students who are now leaders of continent-wide organizations or bishops of denominations. We saw the magnificent beauty of the Church of East Africa. We saw all of its glory, its shining light, its magnificence of the light of the face of Jesus Christ and we saw it in the paradoxical juxtaposition of many mud churches. Now my intent isn't to glamorize poverty, but it's to try and help us to enter into the text in a way that Paul, I think, would want us to go. During the two weeks, we visited many church plants, but we spent significant time in four of them. Each of them had their own light, their own glory, their own treasure, we could say. But I want you to look at one of them, and if we can put up the first slide. 
So this was one of the churches that we went to, maybe if you could go through, uh, I think we have four slides that we can see to see where this church is. We traveled several hours over roads that really don't deserve to be called roads. To get to this church, it was perched on a hill overlooking the valley, and in the distance you could see the Indian Ocean. We walked into the church, greeted by congregants, and we all felt something special. God was present in that place. And I immediately recalled this passage of scripture as I was sitting there. We have this treasure in jars of clay, so the extraordinary power belongs to God and not to us. Recently, God's led me on this journey, a journey of weakness, a journey during Lent, a journey deeper into my own frailty, a, deeper, a journey deeper into other people's frailty. So let me draw some implications for our ministerial leadership. The gospel, of course, is not some kind of Rubik's Cube that we just need to figure out. It's also not a ticket that we put in our pocket in order to just get to heaven. The gospel, Paul tells us, is a light and its power. It's glorious light in the face of Jesus Christ, but it's something that we each bear in earthen vessels, much like these churches. So what does this mean for us? It means fundamentally, weakness is not our enemy, but is the very means by which Christ is made known in this world. It's also the pathway of leadership. As Marva Dawn says, even as Christ accomplished atonement for us by suffering death, so the Lord accomplishes witness to the world through our weakness. In fact, and listen to Marva, she says, God has more need of our weakness than our strength. Just as powers overstep their bounds and become God's, so our power becomes a rival to God. By our union with Christ and the power of the Spirit and our weakness, we display God's glory. So anything in the world can overstep its bounds and can become a rival to God. It can be a church, it can be an institution, it can be a leader, and Christian leaders are often the most susceptible to this. We need to be reminded that we are earthen vessels. The entire story of our culture, our masculinity, our heroes, our affections revolves around strength and a particular kind of strength, whether it's pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps or there is no crying in baseball, or the heroic solitary leader who thinks she or he is impervious to pain or suffering, or the physical idealism of our star athletes. Our culture is obsessed with power, but a particular power that need, leaves no room for God or for weakness. And thus, I would argue, it's not really power at all, but an idol of power, but something that we allow to be called power. Christian leadership is much more than a strategy or competence or skill or ability. Christian leaders bear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their bodies as earthen vessels within a world of pain. Let me say that again. Christian leaders bear the gospel of Jesus Christ in their bodies as earthen vessels within a world of pain. And we are sent to where darkness and pain 
is at its greatest. Yes, we need Christian leaders, and hopefully Asbury Seminary is raising up the next generation or this generation of Christian leaders. And absolutely, our faith needs to be integrated into our leadership practices. But friends, that itself doesn't go far enough. Does our leadership emerge from the gospel itself? Listen to the words of Emmanuel Katangali and Chris Rice. They say it is risky to enter and belong to the gap places in our world, full of so much pain, so much darkness, where so much is at stake. The ministry of reconciliation requires that the body of the leader become not only a site of suffering, but also a site of holiness, a site of both dying and being raised, of crucifixion and resurrection, this, they say, is what we mean by holiness that Veneer calls learning gentleness in a violent world. I think this is what Paul is at least in part describing in this passage. He goes on to explain how he, we bear this all-surpassing power in weakness, in sufferings, and in beatings, in other words, in our bodies. Katangali and Rice continue, they say, many warriors for justice become steeped in the skills and the protest and the resistance, yet they never learn the equally critical skills of pursuing new life in the gap. One of the distinguishing marks of the gentleness that communion requires is this. Leaders are ones who learn to absorb pain without passing it on to others or to themselves. We live in a world of darkness and pain, and sometimes the darkness and pain comes from ourselves. Other times they are, we experience this from living in a broken world around us, wars, sexual abuse, political tribes fighting each other over ideologies, broken churches, that inflict great pain, a pandemic that kills, divided us, and all the mental illness that we are facing in our society, the pain of poverty, of racial divides, of ecological damage, and the list can go on and on and on and on. Jesus is the light out of darkness. He became a jar of clay, so to speak, embodying gentleness within a world of pain and violence. Christian leaders must carry the gospel in our bodies. We need to learn to absorb pain without passing it on to others or to ourselves. Lent becomes a season of training for Christian leaders. Look with me again at this church in Kuala Mombasa. Surrounding the church, we find poverty, we find ethnic divide, we find religious divides, we find ecological frailty and decay. All churches are surrounded by pain and darkness and suffering. In the West, we like our churches to be mirrors of all the things that we crave, huge fortified buildings set apart from the rest of the community, showcasing our cultural symbols of strength and comfort. Or as leaders, we try to control everything or build for ourselves legacies or jockey for power. 
Christian leaders too easily mirror our cultural symbols of strength rather than serving as earthen vessels to show that the power is from God. We need to be agents of paradoxical juxtaposition. We need to stand in the gaps where pain and brokenness, brokenness and darkness are the greatest, and we can't do this without getting dirty, or in some cases, bloodied. Weakness is not our enemy, and very well may be the pathway that God is calling the next generation of Christian leaders. We simply can't just think Christianly about leadership. We've got to go far deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our very bodies, our persons are called to be bearers of the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through our leadership. Let's hear once again the words of Paul, but we have this treasure in clay jars or mud churches so that it may be clear that the extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus, so that, here's the good news, the life, the resurrection of Jesus may also be visible in our bodies. Paradoxical juxtaposition is a fun two words put together, and it takes us into a world pregnant with meaning. But it requires gentleness in a world of violence, the death and life of Jesus in our bodies, the gospel infusing our leadership, and the all-surpassing power of God in a jar of clay or a church made out of mud. Let's pray. God of light, God of weakness, let your gospel shine in this world through the face of Jesus and let us, your people, embody your gospel as earthen vessels to proclaim to the world that this all-surpassing power is from you and not from us. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways we run after strength or power, control, comfort. We repent of the ways that we have not embodied your gospel even in our own leadership. Send us into the places that most need you. Let your glorious light shine out of darkness. May we be jars of clay so that everyone in the world would see that the power is of you and not from us. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.